Michael Vonnen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek. And in this video, I want to talk about some things that Peter Jackson got wrong or might lead you to believe things that are wrong based on his movies. But they're not really specific events so much as just broader misconceptions about Tolkien's world or the story as a broader whole. So not for example, individual problems with a given character or an event he leaves out or changes drastically, but something about, you know, the people of Middle-earth or the general timeline or something like that. So I'm not going to give away any specifics now, obviously, but that's the kind of idea I want to get into, and I'll end up doing one of these for The Hobbit as well, because there's some things about both that Peter Jackson's movies tend to make you think things about either the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit stories that we actually know are not true, but none of them are really related to just an individual instance of something being changed. So without any further ado, let's get started. Starting more or less at the beginning, let's talk about some of the timeline issues that you would definitely get wrong going by the apparent timeline of the first 30 to 40 minutes of the movie. Uh, because in the movie, you basically get the, the, after the prologue, of course, you get the Bilbo's birthday party, which leads almost directly into Gandalf going off, finding out what the ring is, and then coming back to Frodo. And <clears throat> you also see in the birthday party that Merry and Pippin are basically the same ages that they are at the beginning of the quest. This is completely wrong, because in the book... There's actually a 17-year span between when Gandalf leaves Frodo at the end of Bilbo's birthday party. Actually, it's the next day, but, you know, details aside. And when he comes back to tell him about what he's found out about the ring. Because he doesn't go off just after Bilbo's birthday party knowing or feeling fairly certain what the ring is. He just kind of knows that it is a magic ring and he knows that it is somewhat dangerous, but it takes him a long time to figure it out because he's got other things going on that he's trying to take care of in the same span of time. Now, the funny thing about this is because of that 17 years, a lot of things are messed up about the story in the characters that you wouldn't necessarily get otherwise. So for starters, like I mentioned, Merry and Pippin are basically the same age in the movie throughout. But if you actually pay attention to the appendices and learn when Merry and Pippin were born and all this stuff, you, you can actually find their birth years and figure out how old they were at different points. Pippin would have only been 12 years old at the time of Bilbo's birthday party. And as it is, he's only 29 when the quest begins. And at 29, he hasn't yet come of age as a hobbit because hobbits have longer lives than men. They age a little more slowly. And so as a result, even at the beginning of the book, uh, whenever he, or, well, the quest, book or movie, really, he's technically not even a full adult yet. He'd probably be about the equivalent of an 18 or 19-year-old human. So there, there's one effect that has on the story. So you see Mary and Pippin setting off a, a firework. Pippin wouldn't even have been, you know, he would have been the equivalent of an eight or nine-year-old probably. So that's that's an interesting little 
funny thing going on there. And then, of course, the other thing that gets confusing is the way that Bilbo ages drastically in the movie from the Fellowship to the Return of the King. A lot of people think that this is because now that he doesn't have the ring, he ages just horribly fast. But that doesn't make any sense because Gollum doesn't age horribly fast in the much longer span of time that he's been without the ring because he's actually been without the ring even if you don't count the 17 years between the party and and Gandalf returning, he's been without the ring at least 60 years because it's been 60 years as of Bilbo's birthday party since he got the ring from Gollum and had his whole adventure in The Hobbit. So there's another weird thing that doesn't really make any sense if you start putting the pieces together, but if you put the, the actual timeline in, it makes more sense. And of course it also explains another, well it doesn't explain uh, because in the movie it doesn't really become an issue, but it it is an important fact that is kind of hinted at in Peter Jackson's movies that because the ring slows down your aging, which is why Gandalf says to Bilbo at the very beginning, you haven't aged a day, um, it explains why Frodo does look exactly the same at the end of Bilbo's party and the start of the quest. Because in fact, when uh, Bilbo's party ends, Frodo has just come of age at the age of 33. That's the typical coming of age point of a, for a hobbit. And at the beginning of the quest, he's 51, 50 or 51. So he's got, you know, 51 for a human, that's definitely middle-aged. 51 for a hobbit's probably maybe early middle-aged. So you'd think he'd be showing some signs of not being quite as young, and yet he still looks like you know, the boyish Elijah Wood that we all know. So it really interestingly messes up a lot of different things and exp and has a lot of different weird effects on the story and the characters that you wouldn't really get. It's also really important because it does uh, show the fact that Gandalf didn't really know for sure what was going on. Uh, he didn't reach down in the book to grab the ring and suddenly see a flash of an eye of Sauron. Speaking of which, that's the next topic. So let's get to that one. The Eye of Sauron and it is, of course, in the book and the movie. But in the movie, you very much get the impression, and in fact, Saruman explicitly states this, uh, that the Eye is really the only embodiment of Sauron at all. Uh, Saruman in the movie says he cannot yet, yet take physical form, but his spirit has lost none of its potency. It's nowhere said in the Lord of the Rings specifically that Sauron has a body, but it is heavily implied, and it even is it's implied by the very uh, thing in very same thing in the book that is also quoted in the movie when Pippin looks into the Palantir, and when Gandalf questions him, he says, "I saw him." Well, what did you see? You didn't see just an eye to say you saw him. That wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. But in fact, we do know from a letter that Tolkien wrote, and I'll link to the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien if you want to check this out yourself, Sauron actually did have a physical form by the time the Lord of the Rings begins. And so what's the deal with the Eye of Sauron? Well, in the movie you get the impression that you can kind of see the Eye of Sauron anytime you have the ring or anytime Sauron's presence is in some way made manifest sort of kind of it's weird in the movie there's no real good explanation for it the only time it really pops up in the book 
is when Frodo looks into the mirror of Galadriel in Lothlorien. And that's important because the mirror is actually something that does allow you to see things that are either far off or in the future or in the past. And so it's very much possible that Galadriel could actually see, uh, well, anybody looking into the mirror of Galadriel, I should say, could see Sauron's physical eye and his eye would look like more or less what it looks like in the in the movie. It's the description is not quite exact. It does say that it has a slit and it's, you know, yellow and it's like a cat's eye. And that it may even say something about a flame. I can't remember off the top of my head right now, but uh the point is he could exact he could have an eye like that. One of the things that Lord of the Rings does tell us and and Tolkien does kind of go into a little bit more detail in this in his letters as well is that after Sauron's destruction in the fall of Numenor, and then again after, well, basically after the fall of Numenor, I don't think he ever references his destruction at the hands of Elendil and Gilgalad in the last war, the, the lore of the last alliance, but he can't take a form that appears beautiful anymore. He's more or less stuck looking ugly, or at least not attractive. And so you could believe Therefore, that, you know, being a spirit who could take different forms, if he's going to be stuck with a bad form, he could end up with an eye that looks like a cat's eye. And that would be part of what makes him look really creepy. So that's another one where there's this misconception that Sauron is just this big eye. There's, there is no big eye floating on top of Barad-dûr in the books. That doesn't really happen. So that's the second one. Now let's get to some more. So, moving on to some of the races of Tolkien's Middle-earth, let's talk, talk about elves a little bit. One of the uh, basic aesthetic decisions that was made uh, for Peter Jackson's movies is that all elves look more or less feminine with long hair and beardless. That's, I mean, essentially the, the elven aesthetic. Now, they don't all look really feminine. I mean, you've got Elrond, who still looks very much masculine despite the long hair and everything. And you've got Haldir who also is very much with that big nose is not terribly feminine. Uh, but as a general rule, at least you get the idea that they're all beardless, long hair, very graceful and all this other stuff. Now there's nothing per se wrong with the aesthetic, but it does lead you to believe that this is basically how all elves are. And that's actually not the case. Turns out if you read the Lord of the Rings, all the way to the very end, they go to the Grey Havens, which of course is where Frodo, Gandalf, Galadriel, and Elrond all leave Middle-earth on a ship. And what the the person who is the shipwright for the Grey Havens is named Círdan. He's also important because he's the one who gave Gandalf the Ring of Fire, uh, Narya. Uh, that's a story for another time. We can get into that in another video. But the main thing is he's a, he's a character and he's an important one. He's been around, I think, since the First Age. Uh, he's been building ships for practically ever. I mean, he was originally building ships trying to help elves escape uh, and get back to Valinor to help get help to fight Melkor and Morgoth in the Silmarillion, if I remember correctly. So, I mean, you've got this guy who is just ancient and has always been building ships, and so he just keeps building ships, and the ships now are literally just for the purpose of elves getting back to the Undying Lands. But the description of him, for the one brief moment that you actually see him, is that he's gray-haired and has a long beard. 
which is interesting because you don't think of, in fact, the weird thing is in The Lord of the Rings, you don't really get the idea that much of anybody has a beard. Um, I can't think of too many characters at all who are explicitly mentioned as having beards, which probably makes a little sense because when Tolkien grew up, beards were pretty much still out of fashion. You wouldn't really have expected him to write characters with beards. Um, certainly in Aragorn's description, he actually gives a fairly decent description of Aragorn. He's one of the few that gets a longish description. He doesn't mention a beard at all, and yet he has kind of a fledgling beard, and then at the very end, a full-grown beard whenever he gets crowned as king. So you definitely get the idea, if you read the books, that nobody really has beards. And it's even explicitly stated that hobbits, except for one kind of, um, there's three distinct families of hobbits, not really races, not really, I'm not sure how to categorize them, but there's Stewars, Fallowhides, and, um, the third name escapes me, uh, but there's basically three kind of distinct sets of hobbits, and one of them sometimes has, like, a little tuft of hair on their chin, and that's as much beard as they grow. But it's very interesting that, you know, the movie kind of gives beards to most of the humans kind of as a way of distinguishing them from the elves, I guess. And yet we actually know from the story that at least one elf does have a beard. So it's a really funny, it's not a huge deal. It doesn't make a whole lot of difference, but it does show that there's a little bit of a you know, the aesthetic design choices for the movie don't necessarily reflect the reality of Tolkien's world. So, now let's do another one about some of the races of Middle-earth. Men. So for men, I'm not going to so much talk about their physical appearance or anything, although you might could find some things to quibble about. The more important thing is the line very early in the movie in the prologue where it talks about the nine rings being given to men who, above all else, desire power. Now, that kind of sets off in the the train that you see running throughout the movie that basically men are all grasping for power and none of them are really good people for the most part. I mean, you get some characters like Aomer and... Um, Aomer really, I think, about the only one. Uh, Theoden, of course, starts off as kind of just under a spell, and you could forgive him that because that's different than in the book, too. That'll be another video. Um, but even after Theoden is, you know, recovers himself and starts acting normally, he ends up being kind of a whiny baby. His character is not very upstanding. The only Two characters really in Peter Jackson's movies that are men that never really do anything bad are Aragorn and Eomer. Eomer mainly because he never really has an opportunity to. Eomer basically fights bad guys to the extent that he's in the movie at all. Um, and so you've got the idea that, you know, if you could very easily see that if Aomer was ever put in a position where he could be a bad guy, then maybe he would be in Tolkien, in Peter Jackson's movies. Aragorn is, he never really does anything bad, but you do get the idea that when he's, say, when he's letting Frodo go, that he is really thinking about, you know, maybe taking the ring. He denies that he would have ever done that, 
and probably you wouldn't have even in Peter Jackson's movies because even Frodo in the movie says, I know. Um, but you definitely get the idea from every other character that's a man that men are all kind of dastardly people who, you know, might redeem themselves like Boromir did and like Faramir did, just, you know, Boromir did right before he died. Faramir redeemed himself in time to not get killed. But you get the idea that men are pretty much all scumbags, other than Aragorn and, like I said, Aomer, but he's a iffy case. Well, the funny thing is, if you actually read Tolkien's letters and, you know, basically his own commentary on his own story, the overriding desire that kind of sets men apart is not a search for power so much as it is a the exact thing that puts them in a counterpoint to the elves. It's, it's mortality. Men want immortality. That's why Numenor sank. The last king of Numenor decided he was going to try to conquer the Undying Lands so that he could take immortality for himself, which didn't make any sense, but he didn't know that. He just wanted immortality, and he was fooled by Sauron. The thing that men want is to live longer, which the elves see as kind of foolish because after living for ages and ages, they're weary of the world, and they're tired of it, and they're looking at men going, man, you got it better than you think you do. So power, while it can be a failing of men, it is not the universal man-sin type thing in, in Tolkien's world. It's not the original sin of Middle-earth for men. Uh, it's really not. I mean, you've got—even Denethor, uh, if you read Tolkien's letters, Denethor's problem is not that he wants power so much. It's that he is a politically motivated human being. He's not— looking out for the good of the world as a whole. He's looking out for the good of Gondor as his realm. So you've got, you know, that going on. It's not that he wants power. It's, you know, his his desire is not so much to have power because he already has it. It's to maintain it as a political person. Faramir in Peter Jackson's movies gets messed up, and I've done videos on Faramir before, because he you know, actually wants to take the ring from Frodo, and you get a hint that he's wanting the same thing as Boromir, just maybe for slightly different reasons, like the fact that he just wants his father's uh, approval. Boromir, of course, is the really, really obvious example, because from the very start, you get the idea that Boromir just wants the ring so that he can use it to fight Mordor head-on. And that's not terribly different than the book, but it is, I think, a little bit overplayed, and it's also turned a little bit on its side because in the movie you get the idea that it's very much just the ring playing on him really early, really fast. Because in the movie you get the scene in the Two Towers, the extended edition. If you haven't seen the extended edition, spoiler warning. Uh, but there's a scene with Faramir, Boromir, and Denethor. Uh, I can't remember how much of this is in the extended only. Some of it might be in the... It's been too long since I've seen the original, but it, it, I think it, some of this is only in the extended edition. Uh, Boromir is told by Denethor that it's rumored that the ring has been found, and that's what Elrond wants to hold this meeting about. So there's the, the conversation goes in such a way that you get the idea that Boromir is actually very much reticent to go and get the ring because he actually doesn't want to 
get involved with this thing that's so dangerous, which in itself is a huge misconception because nobody in Gondor really knew that the ring was even out there. They didn't know any of that stuff. They had very vague ideas of what happened to Isildur after he left um, and was they knew very little about what happened to him, that he had the ring at all, any of that sort of thing. Denethor might have known more because he was very deep in the lore of Gondor, but he never told Boromir this. And so in the book, Boromir goes off, and yes, he does fall prey to the ring very quickly because of his desire to use it as a weapon, but in conversations with Faramir, uh, between Faramir and Frodo in the book, you very much get the idea that that's just part of his inherent nature as a character. He's very much about, you know, glory in battle, winning the war for, you know, as the great general, that sort of thing. That's always, even from childhood, been kind of his main thing. So it's not even, even Boromir isn't so much looking for power per se. He's looking for power to win battles because what he really wants is the glory of winning battles and that sort of thing. So even in, even in Boromir's character, it gets twisted around. Everything gets turned into this idea that men want power. Whereas in the book, men are a lot more varied and, and subtle and nuanced than in Peter Jackson's movies. So, I mean, you get Farmer, who's an outright good character. You got Theoden, who doesn't really have any desire for power per se, but he's kind of, you know, messed up by worm tongue and whatnot. You have all these different characters with all kinds of different motivations. It doesn't all boil down to, we all just want the ring so bad because we want power. It's not that simple. So... Anyway, I've dragged on long enough about this particular topic. Let's move on to one last one. Finally, the relationship between Saruman and Sauron. Now, the movie gets this half right, half wrong. Uh, if you watch just the movie, you get the idea that Saruman is in league with Sauron pretty much the whole time, just always kind of doing Sauron's dirty work. And that is certainly true for part of the Lord of the Rings story, or at least it's probably true. It's it's not entirely clear because nobody really knows for sure what's going on in Saruman's head. But Gandalf makes it pretty clear that even if it started that way, Saruman became a traitor even to Sauron. Of course, he hid that from Sauron as long as he could because he didn't want Sauron to crush him, which he could because of the Nazgul and all these other ways that he could get to him. But the main point is Saruman in the book may have started off basically willingly serving Sauron outright, but even if he did, that may or may not have been a ruse. At the end, he is very much going after his own self-interest in capturing the ring for himself. You don't get the idea that he is, well, as Gandalf put it in the movie, deep in the enemy's council, and I guess I should have warned that's also only in the extended edition. Um... Gandalf and Saruman in the extended edition have a conversation in The Return of the King where Gandalf's trying to find out what Saruman knows about Sauron's plans, and that's how they end up getting the Palantir. But the main point is you've got this dynamic between Sauron and Saruman that it's not really a big deal because it doesn't affect the story too much, but you definitely get the idea in the movie that Saruman does know a lot about what Sauron's up to because he's been let in on a secret, which is really not true because by the end of it, he's very much pursuing his own interests, 
hiding as much as he can from Sauron, and Sauron is probably not telling him very much either because he's probably smart enough to know that Saruman is turning traitor. And it's one of the one of the lines that I find interesting in the Lord of the Rings, the book, after they talk to Saruman at, after he's been defeated by the Ents and whatnot, he actually says something to the effect that Saruman is a traitor, doubly so, and isn't that strange. You know, he's basically making a point about how, for some reason, every time you get people who go to the bad side, they always end up infighting. I mean, it's inevitable. So it's an interesting point that actually has some effect on the story because Saruman doesn't really know, you know, nearly as much as you would think he would based on watching Peter Jackson's extended edition. So anyway, that's the last one I want to cover in this one. There's probably some other kind of overarching themes or broad areas where you'd have misconceptions, but I think these are some of the bigger ones. And a lot of the other ones get more into the detail of specific events and things, so I don't want to get into those here. So that'll wrap up this list. So I hope you enjoyed that. If you can think of any other like broad categories of misconceptions based on Peter Jackson's movies, feel free to comment and add those in. Uh, if you have any criticisms, put those in as well. I'm always looking to improve. Uh, if you, and if you do like it, please like, share, and subscribe. If you don't have a YouTube account or just don't want to follow, you can follow me on Twitter at JRRT Lore instead. And until next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek signing out for the Tolkien Lore channel. Namadier.